You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, let's get into the DNA and forensics. In December 2003, Detective Richard Geisen sent several items of physical evidence in the crash shot case to the U.S. Army Forensics Unit for DNA analysis. This included the hairs, fibers, and piece of straw found on Darlene's body, two pubic hair swabs, one coat hanger with entangled hairs, one black boot, right, the white sheet Darlene's body was transported in, her pants and socks, the three cigarette butts, Darlene's Colorado driver's license, the black leather neckband, anal, vaginal, and oral swabs, a plastic vial with a soil sample from the parking lot, and nail clippings from both of Darlene's hands. This directly from the case file, quote, In 2003, swabs taken of the victim's pubic hairs, the ligature around the victim's neck, and from three discarded cigarette butts found near the victim's body on scene were tested and found to contain a partial unknown male DNA profile. Additional genetic material matching this same partial profile was taken from the zipper and button area of Darlene's trousers and from both pant legs. Because the same male had touched Darlene's pants and pubic region and the ligature, and left the cigarette butts around the body, it was apparent to investigators that they had the profile of her killer. Quote, This unknown DNA profile was determined to belong to a suspect based upon the evidence items and locations from where the DNA was present. More testing was conducted in 2011. The same male genetic profile that was found in 2003 was also found this time on the oral swabs taken from Darlene's body, on the hairs entwined with the hanger, and with the hanger itself. This finding clinched it. The person who had strangled Darlene with the hanger was her killer, and they had his DNA. This time, the male DNA profile was sufficient for uploading into CODIS. No hits were generated. The suspect's DNA had not been found at any other crime scene, and he had not been convicted of any other violent crimes. But the profile enabled investigators to eliminate 26 people from the list of approximately 40 persons of interest. In March 2014, CSPD Cold Case Homicide Unit Special Investigator Jennifer Brown took over the case. Around the same time, Army CID was opening a cold case unit in Quantico and planning to include Darlene's case on their list. Brown met with two special agents from the CID about their continued joint investigation of the crash out case. They worked together to conduct a thorough review, sharing files, materials, and information. 
In May 2016, a CID forensic science officer named Jessica Veltri and Jennifer Brown together submitted 27 pieces of evidence to the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory in Georgia for new DNA forensic testing and to be evaluated for amenability to the new phenotype technology that Veltri was aware of. They also obtained and submitted a buckle swab from Charles Green, the primary lab tech responsible for collecting the physical evidence in the crash shock investigation from the beginning. His DNA was needed to ensure that any male genetic material found on the pieces of physical evidence being tested was not his. The testing was completed by October 2016. Jennifer Brown noted in the case file that, quote, a full profile of unknown individual number one was obtained on the inside of left and right pant leg of the victim's slacks, on the swab of the victim's pubic hairs, and from the crotch area of the victim's pants. This was the same male whose partial profile had previously been obtained from a cigarette butt, the leather neckband around Darlene's throat, the hanger, and the zipper area of her pants. The CID report about these results indicates that the pubic hair swabs had produced two mixtures, one of whom was unknown individual number one, the male contributor. The same was true for the inside of the crotch area of Darlene's slacks. A mixture was obtained that originated from two individuals, including unknown individual number one. The inside of the left and right pant leg of Darlene's pants were also swabbed and found to have a mixture with three individuals. These were unknown individual number one, Darlene herself, and a third contributor whose DNA was so minute as to not be usable due to insufficient genetic data. Whoever Darlene's killer was, he had left behind his DNA all over her, the scene, and the murder weapon. In December 2016, the CSPD and CID together engaged the services of Parabon Nanolabs to perform DNA phenotyping, the process of predicting physical appearance and ancestry from unidentified DNA evidence. The DNA composite was completed on January 3, 2017. The CID released a press release on March 13, 2017, in honor of the imminent 30th anniversary of Darlene's murder. It was titled, quote, Army CID offers $10,000 reward on 1987 homicide case using state-of-the-art science. This was referring to the Parabon snapshot. The release included two computer-generated images of the suspect at different ages, along with the genetic features that were discernible from his DNA. The snapshot of the potential suspect depicted a fair-skinned white male with brown hair and hazel or green eyes, and of North and or Northeast European descent. The press release also announced a $10,000 reward for information in the crash shot case. Lots of people called in tips about the snapshot, and detectives ran them all down but they did not lead to the killer. The next step came two years later with forensic genealogy. In early 2019, CSPD and CID contracted with Parabon Nanolabs to perform forensic genealogy on the male profile in this case. As usual, Parabon uploaded the suspect's genetic profile into GEDmatch. They found several relatives. The closest degree relative to the suspect was a woman named Charmaine, who shared 87.6 centimorgans with the suspect likely a second cousin once removed or third cousin. The second closest match was a woman named Linda, who shared 74.7 centimorgans with the suspect. She was anywhere from a second cousin once removed to a fourth cousin of the suspect. The third match was a woman named Nancy, who shared 67.3 centimorgans with the suspect, another distant cousin. 
But the genealogists lucked out here because Nancy was not related to Charmaine and Linda, who were mother and daughter. This meant that both sides of the suspect's family tree were represented and traceable. Per the report, quote, The unknown individual number one must, therefore, descend from a common ancestor present in each of their respective family trees. Using the triangulation process we have heard so much about in these cases, and going back multiple generations to ancestors born in the early 1800s, the genealogist was able to connect these distant cousins to determine that the suspect was almost certainly the result of a union between a Patricia Jeske and a John White, spelled W-H-Y-T-E. Any offspring from this marriage was a second cousin once removed of match number one, Charmaine, on the maternal grandfather's side, and a third cousin to match number two, Charmaine's daughter, Linda. They would also be a fourth cousin of match number three, Nancy, on the maternal grandmother's side. And this was big because Patricia Jeske and John White only had one son. His name was Michael Robert White. Parabon's report produced this name and stated that they had a high degree of confidence that he might be unknown individual number one. This case was quite unusual in that there was only one name on Parabon's list, a lead for law enforcement that was focused and specific. CSPD cold case detectives Samoski and Isham received the Parabon report on May 9, 2019. The name Michael White meant nothing to them. He was not mentioned in the entire 1,400-page crash-out case file. But they were happy to hear that this Michael White was alive and well and living in Thornton, Colorado. And they noted after doing some digging that in March of 1987, White had also been in the Colorado Springs area and, in fact, had lived at 1408 Wilshire Drive, 3.1 miles from where Darlene was found. His social media photos showed that he fit the phenotype, fair skin, hazel eyes, and dark brown hair. His DNA was not in CODIS, the detectives noticed. If it were, they would have gotten a hit long ago. They were going to have to obtain his DNA the old-fashioned way, a DNA grab. At 6 a.m. on May 20, 2019, Sergeant Jim Rogers, who was the supervisor of the CSPD's and U.S. Marshals' Violent Offender Fugitive Task Force, along with Detectives Scott Mackey, Aaron Lloyd, Michael Suarez, and Eric Inglesby, headed over to 1507 East 131st Place in Thornton to commence surveillance of the suspect. Detective Mackey staked out the house. Others staked out nearby intersections so they could easily follow White if he left his home. Detective Mackey watched the black Jeep Cherokee registered to White back out of the driveway of the home and commute to his workplace at CenturyLink Communications in Broomfield. The driver, whom the surveillance team recognized from photos as White, parked in a garage on El Dorado Boulevard. Once he left the vehicle, Detective Suarez swabbed the driver's side door handle for DNA, and then they waited. At 11.38, White walked out of his building with another guy and got into a White for F-150. The other guy drove. The surveillance team followed the truck to a smash burger at 6415 West 104th Avenue in Westminster. This from the police report by Sergeant Rogers. Mr. White and the unidentified male entered Smashburger. I, along with other task force personnel, entered Smashburger and maintained visual surveillance of Mr. White. Uh, note here that Sergeant Rogers and Detective Inglesby also went into the restaurant and ordered food, sitting at a nearby table so they could observe. Back to Detective Rogers' report. While there, I noted that Mr. White was drinking out of a red plastic cup with no straw provided by Smashburger. I further noted that there was a single lemon slice in his cup. 
The unidentified male was also drinking from a red plastic cup. However, there was no lemon slice in his cup. Once Mr. White and the unidentified male finished their lunch, they stood and exited Smashburger, walking back towards the white F-150 that they had arrived in. I noted that an employee collected Mr. White and the unidentified male's trash along with both of their red cups. I did note that the unidentified male's cup was placed inside Mr. White's cup, stacked. As the employee moved from the table to the employee-only area of the restaurant, Detective Suarez and Mackey made contact with the employee and collected the cup as evidence. Detective Mackey followed the waitress, Shaylin, to the back and identified himself. Wearing gloves, he collected the cup they had watched White drink from, the one with the lemon slice. He bagged it, and the crew dropped the cup and the SUV door handle swabs in the evidence room. It was all over by early afternoon. Honestly, in all the DNA grabs I have covered to date, this one was the easiest. They didn't have to go through trash or follow the suspect for days, hiding behind trees or crouching down in their unmarked cars. The investigators got two DNA samples from the suspect on day one without expending too much effort at all. And they got lunch out of it. The DNA samples were delivered to the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory on May 22nd. At 1.03 p.m. on June 12th, the lab results were reported to Detective Joseph Samoski. The DNA samples collected from Michael David White were a match to unknown person number one, the man who had left his DNA all over Darlene Crashock, her pants, the leather necklace, the cigarette butts, and the coat hanger. On Wednesday, June 12, 2019, Detective Samoski prepared a probable cause to arrest warrant affidavit to get Judge L. Findorf to sign off on arresting Michael White for first-degree murder based on the evidence that the Colorado Springs police had amassed. The warrant was signed at 3.41 p.m. On the morning of Thursday, June 13, 2019, members of the Violent Offender Fugitive Task Force, comprising personnel from the U.S. Marshals Service, the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, and the Colorado Springs Police Department, assembled and prepared to surveil Michael White. They were joined by CSPD Detective Suarez. The group drove to White's home at 5.30 a.m. They positioned themselves and waited outside 1507 East 131st Place. White made an appearance in his Jeep Cherokee at 6.40 a.m., unexpectedly driving toward his home in a westerly direction on East 131st. He pulled into the garage and it closed behind him. Watching law enforcement officers waited, hoping to get a sense of who else was in the house. Remember that when these surveillance situations happen, law enforcement has no idea whether the suspect will be armed, violent, or assisted by others. White didn't come out again, so more law enforcement personnel from Colorado Springs assembled and they set the wheels in motion. At 3.05 p.m., Detectives Mackey and Inglesby and Sergeant Rogers knocked on White's door. Some of the other detectives were assigned to outside rear containment in case the suspect bolted out the back. But he didn't. This from Detective Mackey's police report, quote, I rang the doorbell and a female answered the door. She identified herself as Michael's wife, E, whom I'm not naming. I asked if Michael was home and she stated he was downstairs. I asked if we can come in and talk to him and she let us in the residence. We went downstairs where contact was made with Michael. I introduced myself and ordered Michael to turn around and place his hands behind his back. Michael was advised that he had a warrant out for his arrest, and he was taken into custody without any incident. Detective Samoski called Paul and Betty from the car outside White's house. They had not been told that there was a suspect in the case, so the phone call that someone had been arrested took them by total surprise. 
In the squad car on the way to the Thornton Police Department, which the investigators were using as a home base until they could get the suspect back to Colorado Springs, White asked Detective Inglesby what this was all about. Inglesby responded that all he knew was that there was a warrant out for his arrest. Once they got to the station, White was processed and a buckle swab taken for comparison to that of unknown person number one. It would prove to be an exact match. Detectives Isham and Samoski interviewed White, who seemed to be cooperative. He asked, what, did I rob a bank or something? They chit-chatted about being in the military. Then they read White his Miranda rights. He waved them and asked again, what's this about? They told him it was in reference to a cold case from Colorado Springs in 1987. They talked about where he was stationed at that time, Fort Carson, and his duties there. He had a hard time recalling exactly what his duties were that long ago. He had been married to his first wife at that time, whom I am not naming, but her first initial is H. White and H lived in off-base housing, even though H was also active-duty military stationed at Fort Carson. They had lived in a place they had rented off South Academy Boulevard. White admitted that he and H had gotten married very young and had already been married eight years in 87, so he would go out alone at night and hit the clubs along Academy Boulevard. He said he was smoking three packs a day, chewing tobacco, and drinking a case of beer daily back then. He was driving a Chevy Blazer. He then asked, This is a homicide? Are you saying I killed someone? They told him the name of the victim, Darlene Crashock. White shook his head no and said that name didn't ring a bell. When he was shown Darlene's picture, he said, no, but she looks like my wife, H, at the time. Then he mumbled something about maybe recognizing her from coming through the processing unit where he was stationed. When he was told the detectives actually had physical evidence tying him to the murder and had a warrant for his arrest, he said, oh, F-word, I didn't commit any crimes. The detectives told him they had his DNA, and White seemed genuinely surprised. They asked if he had an identical twin. He said no, and they said, we know you have three sisters. And he said, oh, you've been investigating me. At that point, he said, well, if you're saying I had sex with this girl, that's possible. I did have sex with girls I met in bars. His exact words were, you got this wrong. I had sex with a lot of women down there, but I never killed them. White admitted to detectives that he had once hit his first wife, H, and he always regretted that. He said that he was the kind of person who stopped for squirrels in the road. Maybe that was true, but he was also the kind of person who tortured and bit and strangled a young woman and dumped her body in a frozen parking lot. After the arrest, the CSPD issued a press release. Police Chief Vince Niski said, quote, There is a lot to be proud of today. The work done by these detectives has been nothing short of exceptional. Since 1987, CSPD cold case detectives, violent crimes detectives, and U.S. Army CID investigators have worked tirelessly to bring this investigation to a conclusion. Throughout these last 32 years, they never lost sight of what was most important, finding answers from Ms. Crashock's family. We hope this arrest will provide those answers and some comfort. Major General David Glazer, the Provost Marshal General of the Army and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command, said, Words cannot convey the satisfaction we are feeling from this arrest. And of course, Darlene's family was thrilled. Rhonda said to Army Times, quote, I'm so happy they kept the DNA after all these years. The Colorado Springs PD and Army CID never forgot about her. Let's talk about the suspect. As I said, Michael White's name never appeared in the case file. He had no criminal record to speak of. White was born to parents John and Patricia on February 5th, 1961, and had three sisters. He had been married three times, and his current wife, E, was suffering from cancer. 
White had enlisted in the Army in 1979 and was assigned to Fort Carson between September 1986 and August 1987, serving in the 4th Infantry Division and working in the processing station. He was promoted in August 87 and went on to serve as a Signal Operations Manager in the Signal Regiment until 1998. After that, he went into the private sector, working for 20 years as a senior network engineer at CenturyLink. He was successful and able to purchase a large home in the Denver suburbs and several vehicles. Detectives sat down with White's very confused and upset wife, E. They explained that her husband was arrested for a 30-year-old murder of a young female soldier who was strangled and that they had his DNA. She asked if there could be some kind of mistake. He had never raised a finger to her, she said. It was not in his nature to be violent. She wondered aloud if maybe his DNA had gotten on the victim from attending some party back in the day. It seems clear from reading her statements that she could not reconcile the husband she knew with a murderer. Detectives tracked down and interviewed White's first wife, H., whom he was married to in March of 1987. She was very rattled at the idea that she had been living with White when he committed the murder, but admitted that they had had their problems and were living somewhat separate lives and, in fact, sleeping in separate bedrooms at the time. She racked her brains to think if he ever came home bruised or scratched, but she couldn't think of any time that that had happened. She was creeped out at how much Darlene resembled her, she said. She wondered aloud if her husband had wanted to kill her and had taken out his anger on poor Darlene instead. She said their breakup was amicable and she had really loved him, but they grew apart. They remained friends and continued to text each other over the years. H. said that the only thing that came close to White mentioning the murder was after his second wife left him and he called her and they talked for hours. He said he had not been a good husband to her and that he did a lot of things in Colorado that he was not proud of. She assumed that he was talking about affairs. She said he got mean when he drank scotch. But she did not believe him capable of planning to kill someone and following up on it. But then she admitted that one time when she was acting jealous and petty, he beat the shit out of her. Her words. She crawled into the bathroom and locked the door to escape him. She could only recall that her face and arms were sore afterwards from taking blows. There was one other time that he hit her, but that was it. H. had a conversation with White from jail after his arrest that was recorded, and it was of interest to investigators. White told H. he had slept with lots of women at that time, the 80s. All he could think of was that he had slept with Darlene that night and someone had killed her afterwards. Seems like this is the same excuse a lot of these guys make. James Zastonic and Luke Fleming are just two examples. I started to wonder, as I read through the 1,400-page case file, whether detectives came to believe that Darlene's killer was never in Shuffle's bar that night after all. They had contacted scores of people who were in the bar, dug up their names, and interviewed them, and no one ever mentioned Michael White. One of the detectives' notes I read posited that Darlene had last been seen walking on Academy Boulevard, and the thinking was that she had been picked up in a vehicle driven by her killer. Maybe she would have accepted a ride from another enlisted man or even recognized White from the Fort Carson Processing Center where he worked in 1987. But then I found a part of the report that indicates that perhaps White was in the bar that night after all. A witness the 1987 investigators had spoken to, a man who was at Shuffles that night, told police that there was a guy there that night that he recognized from work at the processing station at Fort Carson. He didn't know the guy's name, but described him as a white male between the ages of 25 and 30, approximately 6 foot 2 inches tall, 190 pounds, with short, reddish-blonde hair. White is dark-haired, but otherwise the description is a good one. 
After White was arrested, the district attorney putting together the prosecution's case requested that the coat hanger used to strangle Darlene be submitted for advanced DNA testing on August 14, 2019. Modern DNA extraction techniques were able to obtain DNA from the hanger that had yielded no trace evidence back in 1987. A male DNA profile was found on the hangers that was a match to the DNA of Michael White. Since this was the murder weapon, the prosecution would rely heavily on this evidence in its case against White. The 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office formally charged Michael White with first-degree murder after deliberation, first-degree felony murder, and aggravated first-degree sexual assault. A preliminary hearing on October 25, 2019, determined that there was sufficient evidence to try White on the two murder charges, but the sexual assault charge would be dropped. White would not be granted bond while awaiting trial. He was arraigned on February 18, 2020, and he pleaded not guilty. The prosecution and defense both began trial prep, retained experts, and took depositions. COVID delayed things, so finally, jury selection began on June 14, 2021, before Judge Michael McHenry in an El Paso County courtroom. The prosecution's opening statements were what you would expect. They emphasized the brutal and horrific torture, rape, and murder of the young soldier, and stated that the DNA of only one man, the defendant, was found both on the victim and on the implement used to kill her. Specifically, Michael White's DNA was found on Darlene's pant legs, pants crotch, pants button and zipper, leather neckband, pubic region, oral cavity, and hairs caught in the hanger. His DNA was also on the hanger itself, exactly in the spot where the hanger would have been held to cause strangulation. And the three cigarette butts placed Michael White at the scene in the parking lot after the body was there. Prosecutor Joseph Eden told the jury, quote, for 32 years, Michael White was able to evade detectives successfully, but he was not able to evade technology that would prove conclusively that he was the person solely responsible for the rape and murder of Darlene Crashock. Somewhat surprisingly, White's attorney, David Foley, declined to deliver an opening statement. The first witness to take the stand was Betty Crashock, Darlene's mom. She provided background information on Darlene being stationed at Fort Carson working as a mechanic. She planned to re-enlist with the Army Airborne School, she said. Then an interview transcript was read of a conversation with Richard Lance, one of the officers who had originally found Darlene. The transcript was read into the record as an exemption to the hearsay rule that applies when the witness has died, as Officer Lance had passed away since the interview was conducted. His statement was about finding Darlene's cold, nude, and brutalized body behind the Korean Club restaurant that St. Patrick's Day so long ago. His belief, based on the scene and the autopsy findings, was that she was murdered elsewhere and dumped at that location. Carolyn Smith, now Janeski, testified as well, Darlene's best friend. She talked about how devastating her friend's murder was and how the two had joined the army together out of high school. Eric, Darlene's friend that she was out with that night, testified about leaving Darlene at Shuffles the last time she was seen alive. Detective Joe Kenda of Homicide Hunter fame had worked Darlene's case early in his career as a 23-year member of the Colorado Springs Police Department. He testified as the state's fifth witness, answering questions for 45 minutes about the crime scene and investigation. He told the jury, quote, There was a woman's body in the alleyway somewhat exposed, her clothing in disarray. Kenda testified about the investigation. His role was designed to show the thoroughness and propriety of the police work, but also to support the evidence collection and maintenance work of lab tech Charles Green, who had since died. Stephen Wood, a retired detective, spoke about witnessing Darlene's autopsy. 
He described the severe trauma that he saw on her body and the bridal-like coat hanger contraption wrapped around her mouth and throat. His testimony was a precursor to that of Dr. Leon Kelly, El Paso County coroner, who had reviewed the original autopsy report. Darlene's cause of death was ligature strangulation, he told the jury. He talked about the defensive wounds Darlene had on her hands and arms and the damage to her anal and vaginal areas, both indications that she had not engaged in consensual sex, but rather a sexual assault and fight for her life. This had all happened while she was alive, as had the blows that were so severe they caused internal damage. Dr. Kelly told the jury about the injuries to Darlene, including her bitten off nipple and the other bite marks on her body. He talked about the hanger used to strangle her and how it would have required compression several minutes in duration for her to die. His testimony was powerful and made a visible impact on the jury. Colorado Springs cold case police detective Rachel Cruz Rogers also testified for the prosecution about the maintenance of the physical evidence in the case, how it was handled by gloved evidence techs and bagged, labeled, and stored according to protocols. Detective Nestor testified about finding the cigarette butts next to Darlene. The prosecution's final witness was the CID crime lab DNA expert who had worked on the case since 2005, Jennifer Coslin, who was by this time a supervisory biologist DNA branch at the USACIL. She testified about all the DNA testing conducted over the years and the staggering number of times she had been requested to test a DNA sample against the DNA in the crash shot case and had had it come up not a match. Finally, she addressed the pieces of evidence that produced the male profile that matched Michael White. The most damning of these was the coat hanger that had been used to strangle Darlene. Of course, if White's DNA had only been on Darlene's body or even on her pants, the defense might have had an argument that he only danced with her or only had sex with her. It didn't prove guilt. But White touching the murder weapon, the hanger, found literally still around Darlene's throat and in her mouth in a manner that no one would consent to, as well as on the leather necklace, was indisputable evidence of his guilt. And the cigarette butts around her body showed that he had been at the scene where Darlene was dumped. All the DNA evidence in totality showed that the person who had touched Darlene's pubic area and pants zipper was the same person who had wielded the torture device used to kill her, and then left her in the Korean club parking lot like trash. The state's case against Michael White relied almost exclusively on the DNA evidence. It reminded me a lot of the prosecution of Luke Fleming, who was tried and convicted for the murder of Deborah Dalzell, which I covered in Season 1, Episode 15. In that case, as in this one, any concrete connection the prosecution had between victim and killer was established only by DNA on the murder weapon. Here, the state put on witnesses who testified that at the time Michael White allegedly killed Darlene, he lived in close proximity to the scene, he smoked the type of cigarettes that were found, he frequented the Korean club and shuffles, at the time he was not getting along with his own wife, and his wife resembled Darlene. All of this was circumstantial evidence that tended to bolster the DNA evidence, but would not, on its own, have come even close to proving White's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It helped, though, in establishing the likelihood of White's involvement to the jury. Prosecutor Hotstetter drove home the callousness of the crime to the jury, discussing the cigarette butts. He said, quote, He smoked those cigarettes as he stared at what he did, flicked them at her body. After the prosecution rested, the defense moved for a dismissal, a standard tactic in which the defense tries to argue that there isn't enough evidence against the defendant to proceed. That motion was denied. 
White's attorneys did what they could do in defending their client. The defense's cross of the prosecution witnesses focused on trying to undermine the reliability of the evidence, raising issues with labeling and possible contamination. They did everything they could to try to undercut the state's case. The defense pointed out that evidence from the autopsy could have been contaminated, as practices were different in 1987 and gloves were not always worn. The same was true, they said, for the pieces of physical evidence. For example, they pointed out that the bag the hanger was kept in had been changed three times over the years, possibly compromising the DNA. A sample slide was not labeled properly, and a hair sample was missing from a vial, the defense attorney got Detective Cruz Rogers to admit. They also pointed to two evidentiary items that had shown to have a third, barely detectable DNA sample on them, implying that perhaps this contributor of minute amounts of genetic material was the killer instead of white. The defense also attacked the methodologies used and procedures followed by the crime scene investigator Charles Green, who was the original CSI on the case, processed the crime scene, and even witnessed Darlene's autopsy. It was he who collected, categorized, and maintained the evidence like the leather necklace, hanger, Darlene's pants, the pubic hair swabs, and so on. His role was crucial, but he had passed away, so the defense had an opportunity to undercut his work without pushback from him. They maintained that the evidence wasn't stored properly and that today's meticulous standards were not met by the old 1987 methods compromising the evidence. The prosecution focused quite a bit on the meticulous practices employed in maintaining the evidence in order to counteract these arguments. The defense also called its own DNA expert to the stand to try to hammer home the point that touched DNA is very easily transferred and the mere presence of DNA at a crime scene does not equate to guilt. She testified about how DNA samples improperly stored can degrade over time. The defense also harped on the sheer number of potential suspects in this case, for example, Barry Jack, who defense attorney fully maintained were never properly and thoroughly investigated. And then, shockingly, Michael White himself took the stand. He testified about being stationed at Fort Carson in March of 1987 and living off base with his wife, H., He admitted that it was common for Fort Carson soldiers, including himself, to frequent the Korean club restaurant and shuffles and drink beer and dance with women. In fact, he said he had passed around a lot of cigarettes at the Korean club. That must be how some cigarettes with his DNA on them got in the parking lot. Of course, this doesn't account for why it was only his DNA on them. He admitted that he and H were living separate lives. I went home with many women, danced with many women, was picked up by many women. There were women everywhere, he said. But he did not remember Darlene or recognize her photo, he said. I do know that I didn't kill anybody in March of 1987, White said on the stand. I did not murder Darlene Crashock. I did not, he insisted. He did not even know her, he testified. But remember, he had told H in a prison phone call that maybe he had slept with Darlene and then someone else killed her. Apparently, someone else who miraculously not only shed zero DNA, but left all of White's DNA on everything. White swore that he did not know how his DNA got on the wire hanger that was used to strangle Darlene. He said that when the police showed up to arrest him in early 2019, he had no idea why. Media in the courtroom reported that he became emotional on the stand recollecting his arrest, saying, I had just been put in handcuffs in front of my wife who was dying of cancer. I had no idea what was going on. After White testified, the defense rested its case. In closing arguments, the prosecution reviewed the evidence against White. He had lived just 3.1 miles from the scene and frequented the two bars in question. He and his wife were on the outs, and he was able to come and go as he pleased without anyone taking much notice of his activities. 
and the physical evidence was overwhelming. His DNA was all over Darlene, and no one else's DNA was, which was impossible if someone other than White was the killer. His DNA matched that found on three cigarette butts on the ground near Darlene's body, other DNA found on her genital area and pants, and the apparent murder weapon, the coat hanger. The time it took to bend the coat hanger into a bridle and strangle Darlene with it demonstrated sufficient premeditation for a finding of first-degree murder. And Hotstetter made sure that the jury understood the forensic genealogy and how it was a scientific, objective lead. He pointed out that the lab that did the genealogy work took unknown individual number one's DNA and worked backwards to get his identity. They had no skin in the game and didn't have any way to know that the name they came up with was that of a soldier living nearby at the time who frequented the clubs in question. The jury deliberated for only 4.5 hours before announcing that it had reached a verdict on June 24th. They found White guilty on both counts, first-degree murder and felony murder. When the verdict was announced, White seemed to collapse forward and closed his eyes, wincing. Members of his family yelled, Oh no, and Oh God. Paul Krashok was heard saying, Justice is done. Rest, baby, rest. After it was all over, Darlene's mom, Betty, said, She was a fighter and she never wanted to give up. I know she didn't want to give her life up, but she got the evidence that was needed to put him away. After the verdict, Judge McHenry scheduled a sentencing hearing. It would be just a formality. The law in Colorado called for White to receive an automatic sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. But Darlene's family would have the opportunity to give victim impact statements before sentence was pronounced. Paul and Betty Krashuk really came together to fight for justice for their daughter. In fact, her murder literally brought them back together. They eventually remarried. Their joint mission was to see the case solved. Betty, in particular, made a pest of herself, constantly calling and emailing the CSPD to remind them about Darlene's case. She and Paul told the media later that they knew they were a thorn in the side of law enforcement, bugging them all those years. I read the case file, and there is definitely a lot of communication from Betty demanding attention to her daughter's case, digging up leads, sharing her theories, and forwarding tip after tip. She never let up. Betty and Paul told the Colorado Sun that they were worried that they would not live to see Darlene's killer apprehended. And they fretted also that the case would be forgotten as detective after detective assigned to the case retired or was reassigned. The first phone call detectives made after the apprehension of Michael White, made from just outside the his house, was to the Crashocks. At the sentencing hearing, Paul read a prepared statement. He talked about their daughter Darlene and how kind and giving she was. The Crashock family was deprived of her laughter, good deeds, and kind, compassionate heart, thanks to Michael White's evil acts. The murder caused the family eternal pain, anguish, and agony, Paul said, but, quote, now maybe, just maybe, we will have justice. As for White, he was permitted to speak as well. All he said was, quote, I didn't kill Darlene Crashock. There's nothing else. As expected, the judge sentenced him to life without parole. Needless to say, all the investigators who worked the case over the years were elated. CID Forensic Science Officer Jessica Veltri, whose work on getting the evidence tested was instrumental, said, quote, It feels satisfying to know that the hard work and collaboration among multiple agencies in the pursuit of justice finally led to a successful resolution, one that I hope brings some measure of peace to Darlene's family and friends. Note that even though there was a trial in this case and the defendant testified, there is still a lot we don't know about the night Darlene Crashock died. In short, we really don't have any concrete information about how and when Darlene and White crossed paths. 
Prosecutor Joe Eden put it plainly when he told the jury in his closing arguments, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we may never know exactly what took place on that night in March of 1987. We don't know for sure if Michael White danced with Darlene Crashock in that club. We don't know if he saw her from across the dance floor and followed her out as she left for the night. We don't know if he picked her up on the side of the road as she was walking home. But the invisible witness to this case, the witness that has no bias or motive, his DNA, tells us that he was with her in the final moments of her life, and he was the one at the other end of the clothes hanger strangling her. Eden pointed out that the prosecution was not obligated to prove how and when White and Darlene came across each other, and that's true. But I really want to know. And the reason I really want to know is that Michael White must have been incredibly angry that night to torture and assault Darlene the way he did. He bridled her and bit off her nipple like a rabid animal. Was his anger directed at her? Did she reject him in the bar? Was she hitchhiking and he put the moves on her and she shot him down? Or was he angry at something or someone else and Darlene was in the wrong place at the wrong time? It's not likely we'll ever know unless White starts talking. Interestingly, though, White's attorney acknowledged in his closing remarks that it's likely his client was at Shuffles that night. He just doesn't remember. And K.W., the witness, testified that she saw Darlene that night dirty dancing with a man, and she was under the impression that they left together, but she couldn't be certain. If Shuffles is, in fact, where White and Darlene met, what happened that turned that encounter into one of the most brutal and sadistic murders I've discussed? It's all unknown. All we know for certain is that White is responsible for what happened to Darlene. And as of right now, it appears that Michael White is yet another example of the one-and-done killers that we have seen in so many of the previous 25 episodes. Sergeant Dabb told me that not only were they never able to connect White to Shuffles that night, they also don't know where the attack on Darlene went down, in White's vehicle, at his apartment, or somewhere else. They were unable to track down the Chevy Blazer he was driving at the time, and they could not find any witnesses or anyone White told about Darlene. All we can do is speculate about how Darlene and White crossed paths that night, but cross paths they did. As you can hear, Sergeant Dabb took some extra time to talk to me about this case despite his busy schedule. Listeners may recall that he also closed the Jennifer Watkins case, which I covered in Season 1, Episode 9. His department is going gangbusters, using all the modern forensic tools at their disposal to resolve these cold cases. Cutting-edge forensic testing has evolved to the point where analysts can now detect evidence where none was detected by earlier, less sophisticated methods. For example, the hangar in this case was initially determined not to have any trace evidence on it. But modern techniques showed that was not the case. To the contrary, it contained all the evidence investigators needed when combined with forensic genealogy. Sergeant Dabb emphasized that forensic genealogy is a game-changer that has allowed him and his colleagues to provide answers to families who had long since resigned themselves to not ever knowing who killed their loved ones. He told me it was one of the highlights of his career in law enforcement to sit down with the Crashock family and tell them that their daughter's killer was behind bars. After 34 years, Darlene Crashock's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thanks so much to Sergeant Corey Dabb of the Colorado Springs Police Department for talking with me about this case. Thanks so much for listening to this long episode. For those of you interested in contributing to the show, you can find DNA ID on Patreon. A Patreon membership will entitle you to ad-free episodes. Also, for those of you who have been asking for merch, check out www.customizedgirl.com 
slash s slash DNA ID podcast. There you can find some merch items which don't contribute to the show financially, but help spread the word about DNA ID. And they're just kind of fun. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNAID Podcast on Instagram, at DNAID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNAID Podcast on Facebook. DNAID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons. I am your host. J.D. Horror, and this is True Crime Horror Story. A true crime podcast designed like an anthology horror movie. It's definitely not for the faint of heart and never played for laughs. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In seasons one through four, we highlighted both notorious and obscure incidents of real-life murder. From world-famous psychopaths like the Toolbox Killers and Jeffrey Dahmer, the lesser-known evils that you may not have heard of, but have effects just as catastrophic for the victims and their families. Season 5 is coming soon, so subscribe now wherever podcasts can be consumed, and check out our website at www.truecrimehorrorstory.com. True Crime Horror Story. Sometimes truth is more brutal than fiction. <laughs>